Just a quick update before we jump into our next episode. Thanks to Audible, you can get a free audiobook just for being a listener of our show. In the spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. I only recommend books that I have personally read or listened to. At the end of this episode, I'll drop my suggestion, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer opens the door to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And regardless of your decision to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 119 of History of the Marine Corps, part 6 of our Guadalcanal series. This episode focuses on the critical period of October 1942, including the Matanikau phase, where American forces repelled Japanese attacks with strategic positioning and artillery. We'll also discuss the heroic acts of individuals like John Bassalone, and also the leadership decisions that marked a turning point in the battle. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. During the first few months of battle, the Marines faced a few new challenges. By mid-October, the island threw another test at the Marines. Malaria. During the second week in October, over 700 cases were reported by the 1st Marine Division alone. The following week saw over 650. Even troops not clinically diagnosed with malaria suffered from extreme exhaustion, collapsing from fatigue during operations. Gormley's actions on how to handle the outbreak were underpinned by the strategic significance of the Matanikau River Line. The control of the river crossings was crucial for the Marines, with the mouth of the river especially significant due to its suitability for tank and heavy weapon transportation. Despite their limited numbers, the Marines were compelled to maximize their defense by using terrain to their advantage. The defense was focused on a horseshoe position from the river's mouth to the Nippon Bridge. This grim situation was well understood by high-ranking officials, including Undersecretary of the Navy, James Forrestal, who, after visiting Noumea in late August, expressed to Gormley that the American public would be shocked to know about the instability of the Guadalcanal operation and the severe shortages in supplies and military support. Admiral Gormley made plans to quickly replace Marine forces with Army personnel. However, these plans were disrupted by commitments to the European theater. But Gormley kept pushing for reinforcements and grabbed troops wherever they were available. On October 7th, as the 5th Marines moved to the Matanikau and the exhausted raiders prepared for another assault, Gormley ordered U.S. Army Major General M.F. Harmon, in charge of the Army in the South Pacific, to ready a regiment for Guadalcanal. The following day, he directed the 164th Infantry to head to the island as well. The conflict at Guadalcanal intensified as both Japanese and Allied forces escalated their efforts. 
While U.S. forces were bringing in reinforcements, so was Japan. Although the Marines had control of Lunga Point, most of the island was unoccupied. Japanese troops enjoyed more operational freedom and easier reinforcement, with the ability to discreetly bring in around 900 troops per night. This helped maintain their troops' morale and ease the pressure on their forces. In contrast, the Marines were restricted to a small defensive perimeter, making them more susceptible to enemy strikes. But the logistical issues that initially plagued the Marines began to improve. By the middle of October, supply lines from Wellington and Noumea were established, increasing the flow of supplies to a steady stream. This enhanced living conditions and reinforced defenses. Air operations also evolved, with planes supplying aviation fuel and casualty evacuation planes capable of transporting wounded personnel. Between August and December, close to 4,000 casualties were evacuated. The arrival of new units brought additional supplies, which improved the early operational strain. By the time the 1st Army unit landed on October 13th, Supplies had grown sufficiently to sustain the newly arrived 164th Infantry for a month without affecting other units. The scale and coordination of Japanese attacks increased, indicating a significant and complex offensive was imminent. But the Marines were exhausted, and the morale within the defensive perimeter was waning. The promise of more reinforcements coupled with better supply conditions, still didn't fully lift the spirits of the Marines. They had been engaged in relentless combat for two months, and the combat fatigue was showing. Malaria was rife, incapacitating many Marines, just as effectively as combat injuries, while those who remained on duty were often too weak to be effective. Reports indicated that Japan was building up forces 25 miles east of the perimeter. A battalion-sized force from Tulagi was deployed to launch a pre-dawn amphibious assault, guided by Captain Clemens and his native scouts. The operation kicked off on October 9th, with Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie companies of the 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines, led by Lieutenant Colonel Robert Hill, advancing in Higgins' boats. When they left Tulagi, they were towed in groups of four by yard patrol boats, also known as Yippie boats. One of the Higgins faced an unfortunate accident when the bow assembly pulled loose while under tow. It filled with water and the craft was lost, taking with it one officer, 14 enlisted Marines, and three Navy enlisted. The search for the missing crew lasted hours which caused a delay and change in plans. The landing craft were supposed to attack at the same time, but due to the loss of one of the boats, the assaults were split up. When Clemens landed, he gave Lieutenant Colonel Robert Hill, in charge of 1-2, precise intelligence on the enemy's strength. I mean, down to the exact number. At first, Hill was a little skeptical of this information. He didn't understand how Clemens gathered such detailed information about Japan's strength. He asked how he came up with the estimate, and Clemens responded that it wasn't an estimate at all, 
It was the actual count provided by native scouts who had secretly counted the Japanese equipment while posing as helpers. From October 21st through the 28th, the enemy increased their assaults through continuous shelling of the perimeter and air raids. They also had more precise and powerful artillery fire from the Kokombona area, which suggested that heavy, long-range artillery was now on the battlefield. Native informants confirmed the lack of threat from the east and south. There was also a noteworthy report that came from Saku, a native constable. Constable Saku's patrol report, dated October 3rd to the 5th, recounts his tracking of enemy movements in the Solomon Islands during World War II. When he set out on his patrol, he traveled through waterways without encountering any enemy. He learned that the Japanese had been split into two groups. One had moved down the Teneru River, while the other stayed by the Bellaha River, eating all of the local food. Saku and his patrol ambushed ten unarmed enemy soldiers, who were foraging for nuts, killing them with hand weapons to avoid detection. The following day, they killed nine more enemy soldiers in a similar fashion. During these two fights, they collected a total of 100 rifles, two machine guns, several mortars, and numerous hand grenades. The report also details the dire situation of the enemy forces, noting that many had died of hunger. In addition, there were numerous dead aviators and scattered aircraft debris in the area. The night of October 22nd was met with intense artillery fire. Enemy infantry, who were supported by tanks, attempted to breach the American lines, but they were repelled with significant tank losses. Marines had defended their position with automatic weapons, anti-tank guns, 81mm mortars from 3-1 and 3-7, and 10 batteries from the 11th Marines. One Japanese tank managed to break through the line, but it was taken out by a Marine who threw a grenade in its tracks as it passed by his fighting hole. By 2200, the attack was over. Nine enemy tanks were destroyed, and it took days and multiple patrol reports to assess the full extent of the enemy's defeat. With several hundred enemy troops killed, and more tanks destroyed by the American artillery. The success of the American forces was attributed to strategic artillery placement by Brigadier General Pedro A. Del Valle, who decided not to move the artillery despite the possibility of a southern assault. The artillery, which was positioned across the Lunga River, was essential in the defense and destruction of the enemy forces that were boxed in and exterminated in a calculated manner. From the 24th through the 26th, there was a significant shift in the military dynamics affecting the 7th Marines. Patrols and reports indicated no Japanese presence in the southern area, near the Lunga Valley. This led to a decision to redistribute U.S. forces. Soon after the realignment, signs of enemy activity emerged including the sightings of a Japanese officer, and smoke from fires. The 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, 
withdrew from its southern lines east of the Lunga and moved west to replace the 3rd Battalion 1st Marines at the mouth of the Matanikau. This repositioning left the 1st Battalion 7th Marines under the command of Pooler with the sole responsibility of defending Sector 5. This sector spanned 2,500 yards and stretched from the inland flank of the 164th Infantry across the southern slopes of Bloody Ridge to the Lunga River. Pooler's extended lines were extremely thin, but the perceived threat from the south seemed minimal. On October 24th, the strategy of deploying a thin line of forces was put to question as an outpost was attacked and overrun, with 45 out of the 46 men stationed there retreating. The one that was left actually went missing in the dense jungle, but returned to base two weeks later. Platoon Sergeant Ralph Briggs Jr., who was in charge of the outpost, informed Pooler of the large force of enemy troops moving towards their battalion lines. Pooler ordered his men to be prepared for an incoming attack, but hold fire as long as possible so the men from the outpost wouldn't be caught in the crossfire. Although that decision allowed those 45 Marines to come back to the perimeter, it also gave the enemy time to move closer to 1-7, and they were able to reach the barbed wire in front of their positions, which they began cutting. 30 minutes after midnight, the enemy came running out of the jungle, screaming their bonsais. 1-7 faced a concentrated assault from a determined force, who were launching grenades and firing machine guns at 1-7's left-center line. Chesty called for mortar and artillery as his Marines concentrated rifle and machine gun fire at the incoming enemy. His left flank, with troops from 2nd Battalion and the 164th, joined in the fight, and after an intense 15 minutes of combat, Japan pulled back due to the overwhelming defense. But the fight wasn't over, and Pooler called for more reinforcements. Lieutenant Colonel Hall sent the 3rd Battalion of the 164th Infantry to help out, but reaching Chesty was the main problem. It was raining, and the 164th had to cross a mile of muddy ridges before they reached the Marines. As reinforcements were on their way, Marines continued to be hit by a strong enemy force. Japanese forces were starting to punch a few holes in the line, but the Marines worked hard in regaining lost positions and pushing the enemy back. One of these areas included a machine gun position that Japan managed to knock out all but two of its crew. John Bassalone decided to take matters into his own hands and recaptured the machine gun section. He received the Medal of Honor for his actions that day, the first Medal of Honor earned by an enlisted Marine during World War II. His citation reads, quote, While the enemy was hammering at the Marines' defensive positions, Sergeant Bassalone, in charge of two sections of heavy machine guns, fought valiantly to check the savage and determined assault. In a fierce frontal attack with the Japanese blasting his guns with grenades and mortar fire, one of Sergeant Bassalone's sections, with its gun crews, was put out of action, leaving only two men able to carry on. Moving an extra gun into position, he placed it in action, 
then, under continual fire, repaired another and personally manned it, gallantly holding his line until replacements arrived. A little later, with ammunition critically low and the supply lines cut off, Sergeant Bassalone, at great risk of his life and in the face of continued enemy attack, battled his way through hostile lines with urgently needed shells for his gunners, thereby contributing in large measure to the virtual annihilation of a Japanese regiment. Unquote. Reinforcements slowly started to arrive. Pooler decided to integrate these fresh troops into existing lines instead of replacing Marines completely. This decision allowed for the more seasoned Marines to lead these soldiers into battle instead of having them fend for themselves. The intense defense by U.S. troops slowly caused Japanese forces to dwindle. Each attack saw fewer and fewer enemy troops, as most were being eradicated. On the night of October 25th, 1-7 and the 3rd Battalion of the 164th repelled heavy assaults. There were significant Japanese losses during this attack, notably in the 29th Infantry, which suffered over 1,000 casualties. The Japanese attacks lacked tactical flexibility and innovation. They were continuously directed at the same defensive point, and met with intense resistance from the Marines and Army, using automatic weapons and artillery fire. Later during the battle, a Japanese sergeant was captured during these assaults, and he was asked why they were being sent to the same defensive zone time and time again. Why wasn't Japan altering its strategy? His answer was, quote, that since the plan for the attack had been worked out carefully, it had to be followed and that no one would dare to improvise, unquote. Platoon Sergeant Mitchell Page also received the Medal of Honor for his actions that night. His citation reads, quote, When the enemy broke through the line directly in front of his position, Platoon Sergeant Page, commanding a machine gun section with fearless determination, continued to direct the fire of his gunners until all his men were either killed or wounded. Alone, against the deadly hail of Japanese shells, he manned his gun, and when it was destroyed, took over another, moving from gun to gun, never ceasing his withering fire against the advancing hordes until reinforcements finally arrived. Then, forming a new line, he dauntlessly and aggressively led a bayonet charge, driving the enemy back and preventing a breakthrough in our lines." Unquote. The conflict at the perimeter quieted down after the unsuccessful Japanese assault on the 25th and the 26th. Enemy activity slowed down, particularly in Sector 3, which indicated a retreat. Reconnaissance missions evaluated the aftermath, reporting 1,462 enemy fatalities and the discovery of abandoned equipment and weapons. Documents that were captured from the enemy helped to piece together their battle plans. It was clear that a larger, coordinated attack had been intended, under the command of Lieutenant General Maruyama of the 2nd Division, which failed due to poor intelligence and underestimation of American forces. They expected no more than 10,000 American troops, which was a significant undercount. 
their lack of understanding of the terrain was also a critical failure. Despite some Japanese soldiers having experience from previous battles in the area, one example was an attempt to create a concealed path for the attack. They were successful in invading detection, but it resulted in severe miscalculation of the time needed to execute the plan. Miscommunication and delays led to uncoordinated and ineffective assaults. In late October, Two significant leadership changes occurred within the South Pacific area. Vice Admiral William Halsey replaced Gormley as the commander of the South Pacific area on October 18th. Ten days later, Major General Clayton B. Vogel established the Marine Corps Command Echelon in Noumea, becoming the commanding general of the 1st Marine Amphibious Corps. This new command included all Marine Corps forces under Halsey's jurisdiction excluding the carrier-based Marine Air Personnel. But Vogel's organization did not engage in tactical oversight on the ongoing operations in Guadalcanal. They focused instead on administrative duties. U.S. forces planned to capitalize on the disruption they had caused the Japanese by their victory at the perimeter in late October. Their goal was to clear the enemy between the Matanacal River and Cocombona and establish an advanced patrol base near the latter, pushing the Japanese artillery out of range of the airfield. With the arrival of the 8th Marines and attached artillery units, General Vandergrift dedicated a substantial force to the operation. The plan anticipated that the Japanese 2nd Division was already weakened from recent engagements. The plan required two regiments, with air, and possibly naval gunfire support. Artillery from the 11th Marines would move forward to assist the attack up to the Poha River. Four bridges were required to be constructed to facilitate the movement of troops across the Matanacal, so Marines didn't have to rely on limited existing crossings. The attack strategy was the same as previous successful tactics. With the 5th Marines attacking west, along the high ground, and the 2nd Marines prepared to follow up. To protect the inland flank, the whaling group, made up of 3-7 and a scout sniper detachment, covered the ridges and ravines to the south. Prior to infantry movement, each target was shelled. On Halloween, engineer battalion companies built three bridges, which allowed the 5th Marines to cross the Matanacal River by dawn. Despite enemy artillery fire, the attack, supported by air, artillery, and naval forces, began as scheduled. The resistance the 5th Marines encountered varied. The 2nd Battalion advanced with little opposition, but the 1st faced intense enemy fire. Charlie Company suffered heavy casualties and had to withdraw. Bravo Company was brought in to support them, but faced setbacks as well. By November 2nd, the 2nd Battalion shifted its advance to circle the enemy, while the 3rd Battalion faced engagements from the left front. Fox Company moved north to relieve pressure on the 3rd Battalion, and India and Kilo Companies of the 3rd Battalion launched a bayonet charge, which cleared a strong enemy pocket near the beach. The final attack phase began on November 3rd, 
with the 2nd Battalion advancing north and compressing the enemy into a corner. India and Kilo, who were anchoring on the beach, joined this movement, trapping Japan's forces. By noon, the enemy was wiped out, including high-ranking officers and weaponry. The 1st Battalion, 164th Infantry, joined the action, and 1-5 moved to defensive positions. The operation resulted in a substantial defeat of the enemy forces. Japan's intense counteroffensive was stopped by Marines on Guadalcanal. Captain Toshikazu Ome, Chief of Staff of the Southeastern Fleet, visited Guadalcanal to directly speak to General Hayukatake about his plan. According to Ome, one of the biggest reasons of the failure was that the Japanese army was not carrying out their attacks on schedule. In interrogations after the war, Ome stated, quote, The Navy lost ships, airplanes, and pilots while trying to give support to the land assault, which was continually delayed, unquote. Due to the Japanese army's failures, the Imperial fleet would lead the next assault. The new, bold plan required the 38th Division to land at Coley Point. The goal was to have U.S. forces focus on this new threat, which would cause them to split up to address the landing troops. When U.S. troops were engaging the landing force, high-speed army vessels would transport troops to New Georgia Sound, otherwise known as the Slot. Then, enemy naval vessels and aircraft would concentrate fire and destroy Henderson Field. With the airstrip out of the way, the Japanese army could land more troops and destroy the remaining Marines. This audacious plan wasn't welcomed by all. Admiral Tanaka, who spent a lot of time in the slot, suggested that American forces were too strong and Japan should pull back closer towards Rabaul. He later recounted, quote, To our regret, the Supreme Command stuck persistently to reinforcing Guadalcanal and never modified this goal until the time came when the island had to be abandoned, unquote. Admiral Halsey warned Major General Vandergrift of a possible landing at Coley Point. To safeguard the area, Vandergrift dispatched 2-7 to intercept. This battalion was on its last leg. They were exhausted from battle, but moved out anyway by truck to the Teneru River and then marched to positions east of the Metapona River. 2-7 ended up right in the middle of Hayakutaki's strategy. While Hanekin and his marines dug in for the night, six Japanese ships landed about a mile east of them and disembarked around 1,500 troops of the 230th Infantry. The rain prohibited the Marines from seeing the ships coming in, and once they were finally spotted, the weather limited their options of what could be done about it. Rain also disabled Hanneken's radios, and he couldn't contact headquarters with this information. The Marines held their position for the night, and in the morning, Hanneken attempted to stop a larger conflict by using mortar fire on the enemy landing zone, hoping to signal his headquarters in the process. But his actions didn't accomplish much. There was no immediate enemy counteraction, 
or acknowledgement from headquarters. As Marines started to face the advancing enemy troops on the beach, they responded with machine gun and mortar fire, which scattered the Japanese soldiers into nearby woods. But as enemy mortar and artillery fire intensified, and with communications still failing, Hanneken was forced to order a retreat to the west of the Metapona River. During the withdrawal, he was able to contact the command post at Lunga, and Vandergrift was updated on the situation. Vandergrift, overseeing multiple operations, including this action, reacted swiftly when he finally received news of the situation. He ordered 17 to relocate by boat to assist Hanneken's unit, which again showed the urgency and adaptability of the U.S. forces in response to the complex dynamics of the battlefield. The 3rd Battalion of the 164th Infantry crossed the river about 3,500 yards upstream, advancing along the east bank toward the Japanese positions. The 2nd Battalion crossed over as well, following closely to provide rear right flank coverage. As they approached the Japanese, the soldiers encountered sporadic small arms fire. Golf Company's two platoons were temporarily stopped by heavy automatic fire, but U.S. artillery and mortars quickly neutralized this threat. Although the Army units had not engaged the enemy directly, they had established a presence in the area. On the 6th, the 7th Marines crossed the river, moving east along the coast, while the 164th discovered an empty enemy encampment further inland. Bravo Company of the 8th Marines, having just landed on the island, moved east to join the assault, accompanied by the 164th Regimental Headquarters and its anti-tank and Charlie companies. This combined force advanced to a location about a mile west of the Metapona River and fortified their position for the night, with the Marines' position near the beach, in anticipation of a Japanese landing. Unknown to the Marine and Army leaders, Japan was changing their strategy. On the night of November 5th and 6th, they began retreating east from their positions across the river. As the U.S. forces stopped west of the Metapona, the Japanese were already east of the river, setting up defensive positions for a broader withdrawal. Resuming their eastward advance on November 8th, U.S. patrols found the Japanese near the coast. The 2nd Battalion, 164th Infantry, joined the 7th Marines and moved quickly to encircle the Japanese. General Rupertus had to withdraw due to dengue fever, and General Seabree was put in his place to take over the operation. 1-7 faced tough resistance, which resulted in multiple casualties, including for the first time in his long, illustrious career, Lieutenant Colonel Pooler. Chesty was less than 400 yards from the front lines when a Japanese salvo landed in front of him. He was blown off his feet and his legs were speckled with fragments. Pooler tried to call headquarters, but his radio man informed him that the wire had been cut and he was unable to do so. Chesty stood up and tried to repair the wire, but he was shot twice in his arm by an enemy sniper. When asked if he was able to stay in command, Puller replied, quote, Yes, of course I am. I'll be okay. 
I can't leave these men. Unquote. Marines dug a fighting hole for Pooler, lifted him in a poncho, then lowered him into the ground with the radio. By night, Chesty found that he could no longer walk and had to make the tough call to notify headquarters. He radioed in, quote, I find myself unable to proceed by leading my troops, unquote. After a short delay, he received a reply, quote, Major John C. Weber will assume command of your battalion within a few hours. He is leaving the perimeter immediately, unquote. Weber arrived at 0300 and took command of this battalion. But although Chesty was in excruciating pain and he lost a lot of blood, he still wouldn't leave until all of the other dead and wounded were on the transport. When he arrived at the field hospital, medical personnel were able to remove six shell fragments without using an anesthetic. They found a bigger wound that required a fully staffed hospital to remove. When the doctor suggested that they send him to Australia to remove the shrapnel, which would put him out for a month, Pooler declined to go, hoping that it would take care of itself. Quote, Hell, when I was a boy in Virginia, half the old men in the country carried around enough Yankee iron in their bodies to open junkyards. I can't go to Australia while my men are fighting. Unquote. 2-7 maneuvered around the Japanese, establishing positions east of the creek and along the beach, while the 2nd Battalion of the 164th secured the left flank and connected with the 1st Battalion of the 7th Marines. This maneuver effectively encircled the Japanese. With the situation to the east under control, the division recalled the 164th and Bravo Company of the 8th Marines planning to refocus efforts towards Kokombona. On November 9th, 2-7 and the 164th initiated a coordinated offensive to eliminate Japanese resistance around Gavaga Creek. With support from 155s and air, the Marine units converged from the east and west. At the same time, the Army Battalion pressed forward from the south, with the goal of squeezing the Japanese towards the coastal area. The Japanese forces, who were caught in this encirclement, fiercely resisted. A notable gap in the encirclement occurred at a swampy section of the creek, where Fox Companies of the Marines and the 164th struggled to establish a connection. The battle persisted into November 10th during which General C.B. repeatedly instructed the 2nd Battalion of the 164th to seal the gap across the creek. But this directive was never fulfilled, leading to the relief of the battalion commander on November 10th. During the 11th and 12th, most of the Japanese forces managed to escape along the creek heading south. Three U.S. battalions combed the area where the Japanese had been cornered, facing minimal resistance and then crossed back over the Metapona River in the afternoon. Marines estimated that 450 Japanese soldiers were killed in the action, while the Americans suffered 40 killed and 120 injured. To summarize the episode, Marines faced additional challenges, which included a significant malaria outbreak. Admiral Gormley was aware of the strategic importance of the Matanikau River line 
and he planned to replace the exhausted Marine forces with Army personnel. But these plans were disrupted due to commitments in Europe. Despite the challenge of finding available units, he was able to direct the 164th Infantry to Guadalcanal. Japanese forces discreetly brought in troops via destroyers, while the Marines continued to improve conditions and establish supply lines and enhanced air operations. The arrival of the 164th Infantry brought additional supplies and manpower. As the Marines held the Matanikau River crossing, Japanese attempts to advance were stopped. The Japanese shifted focus further west. Morale within the defensive perimeter was waning due to the continuous combat and malaria outbreak. Enemy forces landing east of the perimeter prompted a pre-dawn amphibious assault by the Marines. Despite some resistance, U.S. forces inflicted enemy casualties and destroyed supplies and equipment. As Japanese forces intensified assaults with artillery, infantry, and tanks, American forces, strategically positioned, repelled these assaults, destroying several enemy tanks and causing significant enemy losses. This success was partially due to the strategic artillery placement. The 7th Marines, tasked with defending a large sector, faced challenges as an outpost was overrun. Marines were able to repel a concentrated assault by Japanese forces with the help of additional troops. John Bassalone received the Medal of Honor, becoming the first enlisted Marine in World War II to earn this honor. Japan's counteroffensive was stopped by the Marines, with Captain Ome attributing the failure to General Haikutaki's delays. The Imperial Fleet led the next assault, with a bold plan involving landings at Coley Point and coordinated attacks on Henderson Field. The Marines and the 164th successfully advanced and engaged the Japanese near the coast. The continued efforts of the Marines and the 164th led to significant Japanese casualties, while American losses included 40 killed and 120 wounded. The Marine and soldiers' activity on Guadalcanal ultimately stopped Japan's counteroffensive, with American forces successfully repelling attacks and causing substantial enemy losses. Thanks for listening. This week's audiobook is Midnight in the Pacific, Guadalcanal, the World War II battle that turned the tide of war. This book offers a vivid portrayal of the Battle of Guadalcanal, highlighting its strategic importance as a first major Allied offensive against the Empire of Japan. The book emphasizes the critical role of Henderson Field, an airfield whose control was vital for air superiority in the region. This book also dives into the intense naval battles that happened, including the significant U.S. losses during the Battle of Savile Island. One unique aspect of the book is that it underscores the impact of Allied code-breaking efforts, which were instrumental in anticipating Japanese movements. Adding a human element to the story, it includes personal accounts from those who fought on Guadalcanal, shedding light on the brutal realities of combat and daily survival. The campaign is depicted as a pivotal moment in the Pacific War, marking the halt of Japanese expansion and the beginning of a series of Allied offenses. 
We spoke a lot about logistical issues for Marines on Guadalcanal. This book dives into some of the logistical challenges for Japan, demonstrating the complexities and difficulties both sides face during the crucial conflict. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.